Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. As we begin a new series, and as we begin a new season, uh, going into the fall, we have a little taste of fall outside this morning. We're going to begin a new series, and I've entitled it Ecclesia. Ecclesia, simply because Ecclesia is a wonderful Greek word that is often translated church. And we're going to be talking about the church for the next several weeks together and looking upon God's purposes and God's heart for the ecclesia. In fact, we should better say it this way, God's heart for his ecclesia. Because the church is a group of of people, a witnessing community of people who testify to the amazing grace and salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone and whose heart and whose mind are focused upon his truth and his purposes for us today. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. It's, it's the first gospel in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 this morning as we begin to look at the church. Um, as you're turning there, I want to also just make mention of something that, that one of our, our congregation members has put together for us. And as we study the church, this is called getting to know the family at first. And it's a, it's a conglomeration of papers here that are beautifully put together. I got this one back at the coffee area. There's probably some back at the end of, or at the back of the sanctuary as well. Um, and, and it's simply an introduction to four people, family within our church. Uh, there's there's a great people that you'll get to hear about and get to know um, things that they love, um, things that they don't love, I think are in here. No, I think that's not in here. Um, but you get to know people like Megan and Lucas Fanton who are in our church, and Faye and Don Timlowski, whom we prayed for this morning, and Lisa Aiding is in here, and Joanne and Russ Till. So sometime today, go find this. Our heart is for us to get to know one another better, and this is a step in that direction. Um, to help you know maybe some people you don't know. As we're in Matthew chapter 16, though, the reason we're going to start our series, and we're going to be in a bunch of different passages over the course of the next several weeks, but the reason we start in Matthew chapter 16, because this is the first place in the New Testament that it talks about the ecclesia, the church. Um, This idea of church, again, when you think of church, you probably think of a whole bunch of different things. I mean, historically, we, we, um, we call ourselves a church, a witnessing community here in the area of Zealand. You have a particular instance of church in Scripture, like the First Baptist Church at Zealand. You also have a, a more generalized term of church, which we'll look at today when it comes to ecclesia. But what binds the church together is that there are witnesses of Christ, And so one of the phrases that I probably say way too much because I come and go from this building so much, I'll tell my family, hey, I'm going to run to church and I'll be back soon. And they, of course, know that that means I'm coming to 246 West Main Avenue. Yes, that is our address, in case you didn't know, um, here at this place. And, And 
it's really improper for me to speak about the church that way. Now, I know we use that colloquially. That's not a big deal. But when we talk about the church, we're talking about people. We're talking about people. The earliest church did not worship in a particular building that identified itself as a church for several, several decades, if not even a couple of hundred years. They would meet in people's homes. They would sometimes, the early Jewish community of followers of the Messiah Jesus would go to synagogue and then they would meet afterwards as believers but they identified themselves as the church because Jesus identified them as the church, but it wasn't tied to a building. It wasn't tied to an organization. It wasn't tied to a 501c3. It was tied to a people, a people who had experienced incredible life change through the Messiah Jesus. So as we begin to study the church, one of the things I want to help us kind of reprogram our, our minds and our hearts is that when we think about the church, we think about people, not places, okay? Um, as we look at this, one of the burdens of my heart as we talk about the church is to look around at the world um, in which we live. Um, America, one um, author cites in a study that came out recently that we live in a post-Christian America where, let me get the details right here, where within the evangelical community, um, some of the stats here come from Arizona Christian University, and it, within the evangelical community they say 52% now reject the idea of absolute moral truth while a staggering 75% believe that people are inherently good disregarding the fundamental Christian belief in human sinfulness. See, the purpose of the church, the purpose of the people of God is for us to live integrated lives as disciples. My heart and my burden for the church is that we would do just that. And so as I look at the church, I, I look at the church in the way that Jesus has called us to be his witnesses. So for us to be his witnesses means that we have to have an understanding, a biblical understanding of who we are. We have to have a biblical understanding of God's purposes for us as a local community, for the church as a global community, and our ministry that God has for us within the world. So, with all that said, that's kind of my heart for us. As we go into this, I want the Lord to lead and guide us to how we can more effectively serve him and his kingdom and his purposes. But to do that, we need to study what is the church. And that's where we're going to start today. Matthew chapter 16. And we are going to pick up in verse 13. <clears throat> and I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. We'll continue studying as we go this morning. But I want to focus on these first um, verses where it talks about the church. So please rise with me in body or in spirit as we read the scriptures together. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, 
Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my ecclesia, my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather as your bride, as your ecclesia, as your witnessing community of people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. People in whom our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And Father, I pray that you would be... um, that you would lead and guide us in, into what you would have us to learn. Pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher today from the Word of God, that you would reveal to us the ways in which we, we think about church, the ways in which you're calling us to a deeper walk with you and a, and a deeper witness to the community in which we serve and we live. We thank you, God, for your presence here in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Right, so Matthew 16, it's a fairly familiar passage for many people if you've been around the church for some time. Um, But it's a very important passage. Um, The first New Testament mention of the word church occurs here in chapter 16 where Jesus says, and I will build my ecclesia, my witnessing community, my, my body of believers who testify to the amazing grace and mercy and salvation that comes through the Messiah Jesus alone. And so it's here we need to kind of get our idea of why does Jesus even create or establish the church? Notice he says in future tense, I will build my church. So there's something very unique that Jesus does that is distinct from what has come before him. Now the idea of a witnessing community is not foreign to the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, when Israel comes out of Egypt, they come out as a kind of a loose gathering of people. And it's when they're gathered before the Lord, I think it's in Exodus 19, they're gathered, and the word there um, describes a, a community that comes together. And so there's this idea in the Hebrew Bible of a witnessing community of the amazing power and um, salvation of Yahweh. But Jesus says here, I will build my ecclesia. And so there's something new that's happening because there's something new that Jesus is bringing to fruition. What was foreshadowed in the Hebrew Bible is brought into great clarity over two primary things. Simon Peter's confession, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But as we begin to look at this passage, there's a couple things I want to show you. Because Jesus goes to the area of Caesarea Philippi to have this conversation intentionally. It it says here, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who, who do people say that the son of man is? And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? 
the question I have is, why did we come to Caesarea Philippi? Like, why couldn't we have this conversation down in the Galilee? Why couldn't we have it over in the western part along the Mediterranean Sea? It'd be a beautiful breeze coming off the way to enjoy this. Caesarea Philippi is a place that is up in the north area of Israel. So right here, you have the Jordan River in the center of your, of your screen. You have this big body of water up here. This is called the Sea of Galilee. And if you go north of the Sea of Galilee, about 20-ish miles or so, you're going to arrive at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Um, Caesarea Philippi is a place that is largely comprised of Gentiles. So when Jesus goes there, he's not going to a rich Jewish community. If he wanted to do that, he spent most of his time around the Galilee. And the Galilee, especially on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee on the, and on the northern side, there's an incredible amount of Jewish culture, Jewish habitation, all this kind of stuff. That, that, that's where a lot of the people lived from where Jesus was very comfortable and had his teaching ministry. So why do we go all the way up to Caesarea Philippi? Caesarea Philippi, as I mentioned, is a largely Gentile place, and it's a place that historically has struggled to answer the question, who is God? Right? Who is God? They've struggled to understand this question. Um, I have this down here. This, this is Jaffa. Uh, this is the current, um, you know, not political capital city, but the western capital city. If you fly into Israel, you're going to fly into this area, the Tel Aviv area, on the western side right along the Mediterranean. This is near the tribal portion of the tribe of Dan. And you're like, why are we talking about the tribe of Dan? If you were to go back and you look in Judges 18, you'll find that Dan, one of the tribes of Israel, they're given this portion and then they end up leaving this area where God had placed them and Moses had given them a partition. And they end up coming up here and basically kind of establishing their own patterns of worship that are very, very pagan. But they come to this area of Caesarea Philippi. So the area itself, because they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, um, the area itself for the people of Israel has a kind of a, a negative connotation in the sense that the tribe of Dan went from where they shouldn't have gone or went from where they were supposed to be up to where they shouldn't be and they engaged in idolatrous worship. J uh, Josh, or Judges chapter 18 be a good read for you later sometime today. But that's not the only history behind um, this area, this region called Caesarea Philippi. The next, um, here's a photo of Caesarea Philippi, kind of a drone shot that kind of gives you a sense of the beginning foothills of the mountains um, on the anti-Lebanon side that come down. Um, it, it's a place where there's the headwaters of the Jordan up in this area. It's, it's not too far near Tel Dan. And... Um, the other thing that this was historically known for back in the ancient world was the worship of the god Pan. So you have Dan, the tribe who goes up there and engages in the area in idolatrous worship, you know, struggling with the question, who is God? And then you have Pan. Now, Pan is a, a very common idol. Um, it is uh, described as part goat and part human. Uh, Pan was the Arcadian god of the flocks. The name Pan here it comes from the old Arcadian and it means to pasture. Uh, he's a rustic figure who in inhabits the high hills and caves and worships in outdoor contexts. It has to do with fertility rites and, and battle winning. And this area of Caesarea Philippi is known as the center of the worship of the god, lowercase g, Pan. 
Okay, so you have Dan who goes up there and engages in idolatrous worship against Yahweh. You have Pan who is the lowercase g god of this area who many people worship. So it's kind of a very, very pagan context. Not only that, um, in 20 BC, uh, 20 BC, 20 BCE, um, Caesar is in control of the entire region. And what happens here is this area is set apart by Herod, who's kind of the tetrarch underneath Caesar. It's set apart as a, um, as a worship center for the Roman emperor Caesar. So, so there engages the worship that Dan brings up, then the worship of Pan, and then you have this idolatrous imperial cult worship in about 20 BCE. So this area, in fact, the, the imperial cult statue that was put there um, kind of eclipses the god, lowercase g, Pan, who's in the area. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that this is a place known for absolute worship of everything other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus takes his disciples up there and he asks them in this very religious context, but very pagan context, he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, when, when he's talking about Son of Man, he's hearkening back a phrase that comes from Daniel chapter 7 and other places. Who, who do people say that this messianic figure is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, um, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, it's interesting, and Dr. John Beck makes this, this point in, in a teaching he did on this. He says, that would be the kind of answer that you would give if you were down in the Galilee region, right? You're up here where people don't care about John the Baptist, who, by the way, had already died because Herod beheaded him. Um, you're, you're talking about, you know, Jeremiah in, in a very non-Jewish, very pagan context, and the disciples are given, here's all the ideas of who, who maybe this son of man is. And then Jesus asked them the question, a very personal question, and he says to them, but you, who do you say that I am? And so they're wrestling with who is Jesus, who is the Son of Man, in the context of a place that is incredibly pagan. There's all these different cultural understandings of, of what God was correct and which God should be worshipped up in this area. And they're having to wrestle personally with the question, who is Jesus? The same question that has been wrestled with here in this greater sense of who is God? And how do we wrestle with that? Peter, love Peter. He, he's one of those like... Um, sturdy disciples, right? He's all in on everything he does. Sometimes it means his foot gets put in his mouth because he speaks before he thinks, but he has a passion that I think Jesus absolutely loves, and he becomes a very important figure within the church. Peter exclaims, huh, he says this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What is he saying here? When he says Messiah, he's saying that you are the anointed one. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectations of a deliverer for, for the people of Israel. So, so he's making a pretty big claim. Um, but then he also says, you are the son of the living God. So he's tying together Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity, and he's saying, 
in this area where there's a whole bunch of pagan worship places like this one, and these are all outcroppings for various gods in this very area, he's saying, you, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And notice how Jesus responds to him. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, right? When he says you are the son of the living God, by the way, this is an area of, of imperial cult worship, he's taking a direct, a direct swipe at the emperor because the emperor was someone, uh, Caesar was someone who is called the son of the living God, so he's saying, Jesus, you, not Caesar. Jesus, you, not Pan. Jesus, you, not all the worship that happened here with the tribe of Dan. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are the one who is worthy of it all. And Jesus says, you could only receive this because it came from my father. Now, now Peter, again, he's this, this rock guy. In fact, the word Peter mean, in Greek is Petros, and, and it means rock. It means um, stone or rock, and it typically refers to an unattached rock. And so there's a little bit of a play on words here that Jesus has, and he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Peter, you, you, are, you are stone, Peter, but upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, the word rock here that comes after the word Petros is the word Petra. It's, it's a related word. It's also an old-time Christian rock band for those of you who've been around long enough to know that. Um, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, go into Spotify, type in Petra, and have fun. Um, <clears throat> Petra. Um, y- Petra is, is not a, a unattached stone. It, you could translate it a rocky crag or you could translate it bedrock. What I want you to see is this. Look at the stone. This stands up against a bigger pile of stones which stands up against a bigger range of mountains. So imagine you're Jesus and you're walking your disciples all the way up here to an incredibly pagan place that struggles with the question, who is God? And you say to them, who am I? And they say, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, and upon this Petra, upon this stone, upon this bedrock, you could translate that word, um, a, a rock face, I will build my church. And he says, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So, so there's imagery. Like they see this big stone and they're like, Jesus is building his, his church upon this amazing, solid, stalwart confession that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's the rock on which this all sits and they're standing in front of a big stone. So they get the image of a very, very big rock. We, we sang this morning, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. When we sing Christ alone, cornerstone, what we're doing is we're, we're placing through declaration our faith again in the one who is a solid rock. A solid rock, a rock that can be trusted, a rock that not even the gates of Hades can prevail against. 
Now, the idea of the gates of Hades here is also an interesting one because this area was known to be, and in fact, um, it was believed that the underworld, there's a, there's a pool of water that exists in the outcropping here. I don't have a photo of it, the, um, but it's, it's in this one, I believe. There's this pool of water that was believed to be, by the ancients, um, the beginning place of the underworld. So Jesus actually takes his disciples up to a place that was virtually known as the gates of Hades, the, the, the entry place into the underworld. And he says, I will build my church upon this confession. And even the gates of Hades, even all the dark demonic forces that exist in this area, in all the false idol worship that exists in this area, it will not prevail against my church. Do you get the weight of why he took him up to Caesarea Philippi? It rings a little different when you're beside the Sea of Galilee, right? To go into the darkest of dark places and to say, even the darkest of dark will not prevail against my church. Jesus is taking responsibility for his church and he's giving purpose and identity to his church, his witnessing community of people who claim that Jesus and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. I, I love it here too because when he says, I will build my church and not even the forces of Hades will overpower it. He's not just talking about the dark demonic forces of the age. What he's talking about is not even death itself will have power. I'm not sure that the disciples fully understood what he was quite doing yet. At the end of this, he tells them, don't go and tell people that I'm the Messiah. At least not yet. <laughs> you know, he still has to go to, to Jerusalem. He, he's actually circling around and he's going to be headed to Jerusalem for his last time within the next half a year or so, depending on when you date this occurrence. Um, and, and he's going to be going there to die. And he begins in the next couple of verses, in verses 21 through 23, he begins to redefine Messiahship for Peter. Peter thought of the Messiah, I think, in a very understandable Jewish way. They thought of the Messiah as a deliverer. And, and that's true. Uh, the Messiah is a deliverer, but you have to ask, what is the Messiah a deliverer from? Or from what does the Messiah deliver his people? Right? Um, Last week, um, I had a, we, my wife and I were out hiking. Uh, our kids were at, at my in-laws for the weekend. We're out hiking, and I got stung out, out uh, on a trail by the beach uh, by a wasp or something like that. You're like, why am I going down this path? Um, I didn't know I needed some degree of rescue. I just kind of brushed it off. I was like, ow, that hurts. I've been stung before. I keep walking, and all of a sudden, you know, like my, my legs begin to swell, and all of a sudden, I'm starting to itch. Next thing I know, my ears are starting to itch. Next thing I know, my lips are tingling, <laughs> and I stopped, and I'm, Dawn goes, what's up? And then she takes a look at the rash that was starting to form. She's like, let's go, because we had a two-mile walk back to the car. One of the, the reasons I tell you that is uh, so that if you ever see me stung by something, find an EpiPen or whatever, and let's go for it. Um, <laughs> It's good that everybody knows, just in case, right? Um, the reason I tell you that is when we think about salvation and deliverance, a lot of times we look at that 
in relation to what we feel most trapped by. For the mile, mile and a half, two miles back to the car, I was going, all right, I can still breathe. I'm focusing on, I'm walking faster. I'm drinking water. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep focused on the next thing because I didn't know what came. My mind was solely focused on, oh no, is my tongue, no, nope, my tongue's okay. I was all in. And I was like, we need to get to a place and get some sort of drug in order to fix this, right? I became zero focused in many ways, at least in my mind, about what comes next. I think that happens for disciples all the time. For Peter, he's looking, as a Jew, they're looking for a certain kind of deliverance. One of the deliverances that they'd be looking for is that the Messiah would come and free them from Rome. And as we look at these next couple verses, read with me in verse 21, Jesus is going to point out the way you think about deliverance and the way you think about Messiahship is different than the way I think about it, Peter. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go on to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Imagine you're following your teacher and you followed him for a couple of years and, and you, you believe he's the Messiah. You believe he's the one who's come to rescue and Jesus is saying, I have to go die and I have to go suffer and I have to go be put, be put down. And they're going, no. In fact, Peter says, then Peter took him aside. Peter has got the chutzpah in this group. And he began to rebuke Jesus. Imagine going to rebuke Jesus. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. You can imagine Peter saying, I've got my sword. I'm ready to go. They come after you. They're coming after me too. Jesus turns to Peter and he tells him, verse 23, get, me, get behind me, Satan. Get, me, get behind me, adversary. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but you're thinking about man's. So as Jesus is, is asking this question, who do you say that I am? Peter's having to wrestle with this question, who is this Jesus? And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus is saying, do you really know what that means? Do you really know what that means, Peter? In fact, here's what it means. You think the people need to be freed from Rome. Before Rome, it was Greece. Before Greece, it was, I'll probably lose one of the nations. You had Assyria, you had Babylon, you had Egypt, you had the Moabites, you had the Ammonites. You had all these people that, that came in at various points in time, enslaved the people of Israel. They're looking for deliverance but they're looking for the wrong kind of deliverance. Jesus is saying, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. One of the things he's doing is he's beginning to reset Peter's expectation. You don't need salvation from Rome. You need salvation from sin and death. In fact, without salvation from sin and death, game over. It doesn't matter if you don't have that. And this becomes the bedrock of Jesus' confession of who he is, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, people throughout the ages, just kind of jumping up back to the, the, the first part here, he, he says to Peter, 
And, and so the question comes in various traditions, um, who is Peter in all this, right? Um, some traditions hold Peter very, very high as the keeper of everything, who admits people and lets people out. What, what's he doing by saying, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my ecclesia? I think there's three things in view that are going on here. Uh, at least three things in view going on here. Peter becomes a very, very important person within the community, right? P Peter, although he, in the next um, paragraph, is going to say, no, Lord, you can't die, and he gets called the adversary. Um, Peter becomes a very important player in Jesus' kingdom, in Jesus' church, because he's going to be one of the early church leaders who will be a pillar for this community. So on the one hand, <clears throat> it's true to say, I think, that Peter plays a very important role within the foundation of this, this, this church that Jesus is establishing. Um, but that's not it. The, the other thing that when it says, and upon this rock... I will build my church, that Jesus is probably alluding to is he's alluding to himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says it this way regarding Jesus the Messiah. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you may turn there if you would like to, or you can just hear it as I read. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to focus on verse 4. But I want you to notice, this is the same word, this word Petra. Um, now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, this is verse 1, were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That spiritual rock, rock there is Petra, same word as an upon this Petra, I will build my church. But notice who the rock is. The rock that followed them, that rock was the Messiah Jesus, was Christ, was the Messiah. So he's tying not only um, Peter's confession and, and Peter's importance in that early church, but he's also suggesting, I believe, throughout the course of the revelation of Scripture, that Jesus himself is part of that Petra, that, that, that rock of of the messianic community. That's not the only thing, though. The other place that the word Petra is used that is helpful for us in understanding of what does it mean that upon this rock I will build my church, upon this Petra, is in Matthew chapter 7. And in the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice are like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the winds, or the winds blew and beat, the streams rose, but the, those who had their foundation on the rock were sure, and they were, they were strong, and he's referring to his teaching. You know, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. So when we think about, you are Peter, very important part of the early church, and upon this rock, upon this, um, uh, upon this Petra, I will build my church. We're talking about Christ, and we're talking about Christ's teaching, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So, so that's maybe a little bit of the glimpse of what's going on in the context there. So Peter says to Jesus, no, Lord, don't die. This will never happen. Peter is rebuked by Jesus because he's thinking about God's, um, because he's not thinking about God's concerns, but he's thinking about man's. But then Jesus lays another discipleship principle down for his people including you and me. He's talking to his disciples. And the word disciple, easily translated, means learner, or it means student. 
right? A disciple is not someone who has attained some sort of special knowledge or special, um, like I've hit a certain level and now I'm a disciple. A disciple comes, or a disciple is made through a commitment and a belief and trust on the Messiah Jesus and his blood and his righteousness to pay for your sins, right? End of story. That, that's what establishes a disciple. It's someone who says, Jesus, I'm in. I will follow you. But the idea of a disciple is now I'm going to learn what it means to walk as a disciple. And Jesus lays down this discipleship principle in this whole story of what it means, I think, to be the church. Verse 24 of Matthew chapter 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, and he must follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet he loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the walk of a disciple, the the walk of a person in the church, is to know God and to pursue him in relationship so much through his word, through the walk with the spirit of God, so that we have an understanding from him about what matters in this world. And Jesus tells us what matters. Peter, John, Andrew, James, disciples, if you want to be a learner, if you want to come with me, here's the things that are required for you. You deny yourself. By the way, this is the process of becoming a disciple. If If you want to come with me, if you want to be a disciple here, He wants to redefine discipleship. I want you to deny yourself to take up your cross and follow me. If you think you're going to save your life, you're actually going to lose it. But everyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. So not only does Peter struggle with what does it mean for him to be the Messiah, I think they're struggling with what does it actually mean to be a disciple what does it mean to be a member of God's church? And it's simply this. It's to care about the things God cares about. It's to bear witness to the one who is both Messiah and the son of the living God. It's to take up a cross daily and to follow. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, he is talking here to a group of people who know him. But he knows this isn't the end of their journey. In fact, uh, I love the way William Barclay puts this. He says, Christianity, being a part of the church here, never consists in knowing about Jesus. It always consists in knowing Jesus. Do you see the distinction? It's not just knowing about. Knowledge about something will only get you knowledge about it. It's about knowing Jesus. Jesus Christ demands a personal verdict. He did not 
ask only Peter, but he asks every one of us, you, me, what do you think of me? How are you walking in relationship to the Messiah today? Right? The ecclesia, the assembly, you could translate it, the community, the congregation is a spiritual community of people based upon their trust in God and his son, the Messiah Yeshua, or the Messiah Jesus, Dr. David Stern. That's his definition of this. So the question comes for us, what does it mean to be God's church? In the Bible, church is used, I, I mentioned this already, it's used in the universal term, and, and that is of, of every follower of Jesus around the world Right? Be- beginning back in the time of Jesus as he establishes his church on that day in Acts when the Holy Spirit comes upon, um, comes upon this local community and they're indwelt by the Spirit of, of God or the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, not a, it's a third person of the Trinity. It's not just a related spirit or something like that. When they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what does it mean to be the church? It means that God desires us every believer in Jesus Christ to be his witnessing community to the places where we work, where we live, and where we play. It it means that we have an intentional pursuit of Christ in our life because Christ is our life. But then you have to ask the question, there's this, this general idea of church. What does it mean then for us as a local church um, the scriptures also, re- they refer to both. Sometimes they talk about, I will build my church. And then sometimes they say, the church in Jerusalem, like in Acts chapter 8. Or the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 1, or, or other churches. Or the church in Ephesus, or the church in Smyrna, or Thyatira, and all this kind of stuff. Um, what does it mean for that local community, for this local community, to be witnesses of the Messiah? We're going to unpack several different passages of what it means to be the church. And as we do that over the course of the next several weeks, I invite you and and I ask you to ask God as we study together, Lord, how would you have me partner more intentionally with you and with the body of Christ of which I'm a part of to be the church. Because when it speaks of the church, it doesn't just speak of me as an individual or you as an individual. It speaks of us. It, it, it's, it's always a community. It, it's always a congregation. In fact, one scholar um, talks about the word ecclesia, and he says when it talks about the ecclesia, it's never talking about an individual member. It's talking about the body of Christ. It's talking about the people of God. And so if you separate out individual members, there ceases to be a function that God intends for the church to fulfill. Which is why I think it's sometimes hard to be a part of a church. Sometimes it's hard to be a part of a church because you might have a brother or sister in Christ come have a conversation with you and say, hey, why did you say that? Why did you do that? Or you might be the one going to another brother or sister for that reason. Sometimes it's hard. It's, it's not hard to rejoice with those who rejoice, but sometimes it is. But, but it's definitely hard sometimes to weep with those who weep. 
It's, it's hard to love one another as Jesus commands the church. It, it, it's hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 4. It's difficult to be a part of a community sometimes because you have your idea, they have their idea, I have my idea. But notice, I just bring you back to what Peter is told by Jesus in verse 23 of Matthew 16. You're an offense to me because you're thinking about man's concerns and not about God's. God's heart for his church is that we would have hearts that say, all right, Lord, what next? And we'd be ready to say, here we go as he leads and guides. That's our heart, that's my heart for us. That we as a community would say, Lord, how would you intend and purpose us to serve the places where we live, work, and play? How, how, how would you use me to be a witness? And a witness, a part of a community that says, you know, I, I know maybe that person's been burdened by church or maybe that person doesn't even know what a church is, but let me show you the incredible love of a saving God who sets for himself a people who bears witness to his name. This is the amazing thing of the church when we walk in the power of the Spirit because there's no other way that we can pursue this. So, two two asks of you as we close today. The first one is this. Are you a part of Jesus' church? By that, I'm not referring to are you a signed, sealed member. I'm asking, are you a part of the church? There's only one way you become a part of a church. In fact, I would venture to guess that many people have their names on roles in um, in churches that are made up of organizations, <laughs> the church, the organization, how do I say that? There's a lot of people who probably have their name on a roll somewhere saying I'm a part of that church, but they actually aren't a part of the church. Because maybe it's been a cultural thing and maybe it's been a religious thing, maybe it's been a family thing, but they've never actually made the decision personal of what Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? What do you think about Jesus? Are you a part of his church? Is he your Messiah? Do you believe that he is the son of the living God? Do you believe that in him and in him alone holds life? That's the first question you need to wrestle with. And if you want to wrestle with that in conversation, I'd love to have that conversation with you. The second question I'd love to ask you is predicated on the first. If you are part of the church, you call yourself a part of here, of this local community first here. If you're listening to me online and maybe you're a part of a church somewhere else, but you've stumbled onto this teaching, if you are part of a body of believers who witness to the grace and mercy of Jesus, are you walking in an intentional way as an integrated disciple? In other words, are you seeking to know Christ and are you seeking with a group of people to make him known? I am a lousy salesman. I will always be a lousy salesman in the sense that I don't want to sell you something that is not true or not good or anything like that. But here's what I want to offer to you. Being a part of the body of Christ 
is one of the most challenging yet the most enriching things of your life because as you join yourself to other people, God does an incredible work in his people for his glory. Maybe you find yourself this morning and you're detached from a local congregation. Attach yourselves to a Bible-teaching congregation founded upon Jesus and his life and in his death and his resurrection. Attach yourself. Make that decision to say, all right, Lord, what would my life look like to both give and to receive ministry, to love and to be loved, and to pursue your glory in the midst of a people? Because when Jesus came to establish the church, he says, I will build my church, my witnessing community, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Pray with me, please. Our Father and our King, as we close this morning, Lord, you know where each one of our hearts are at. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring revelation and conviction where needed. Lord, some hearing my voice have been burned by the church. And by that, they've been burned, we've been burned by people in the church. And yet, Lord, we, the gates of, of, of hell cannot prevail against your church. And so, God, there is something incredible that is in the gospel that gives us, through the power of grace, the ability to love, the ability to forgive, the ability to pursue unity, the ability to speak truth even when it's uncomfortable. God, we need your help to do that. Bring conviction to our hearts this morning, God. If, if we're not a part of your church and we've been wondering who is Jesus and why does that matter, Lord, I pray anyone struggling with that today, that you would reveal yourself to them in great power, that you would surround them with amazing God moments this week, that they would know how much they're loved by you and the plans and the purposes that you have for their life. A love, God, that, that you've demonstrated not just by affection, but by action, by sending your son to die, to take upon our sin, to be raised, to walk in newness of life so that, you, so that we may have life in your name. And Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart for the community that surrounds us. You've called to us, the church, to be a witnessing community, which means we bear witness. And God, we want to bear witness of the truth of who you are. And we want to bear witness in a way that's consistent with who you are. But God, we need your help to do that. We can't change hearts. We don't know all the backgrounds of everyone we talk to. But God, I pray that you give us an incredible love for people. People made in your image who perhaps look and walk and talk very, very differently than us. But God, that you would give us an incredible heart, your heart for them, that we might bear witness to the amazing truth that we have found in Christ, our solid rock. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. 
We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.